Section 8 The Story of Jesus Part 1 Of the Faith of Men This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by M. L. Cohen, Cleveland, Ohio, June 2007. The Story of Jesus Part 1 by Jack London There have been renunciations and renunciations. But in its essence, renunciation is ever the same. And the paradox of it is that men and women forego the dearest thing in the world for something dearer. It was never otherwise. Thus it was when Abel bought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. The firstlings and the fat thereof were to him the dearest things in the world, yet he gave them over that he might be on good terms with God. So it was with Abraham when he prepared to offer up his son Isaac on a stone. Isaac was very dear to him, but God in incomprehensible ways was yet dearer. It may be that Abraham feared the Lord, but whether that be true or not, it has since been determined by a few billion people that he loved the Lord and desired to serve him. And since it has been determined that love is service, and since to renounce is to serve, then Jesus, who was merely a woman of swart-skinned breed, loved with a great love. She was unversed in history, having learned to read only the signs of weather and of game. So she had never heard of Abel nor of Abraham, nor having escaped the good sisters at Holy Cross, had she been told the story of Ruth, the Moabitess, who renounced her very God for the sake of a stranger woman from a strange land. Jesus had learned only one way of renouncing, and that was with the club as the dynamic factor, in much the same manner as a dog is made to renounce a stolen marrowbone. Yet, when the time came, she proved herself capable of rising to the height of the fair-faced royal races, and of renouncing in right regal fashion. So this is the story of Jesus, which is also the story of Neil Bonner and Kitty Bonner and a couple of Neil Bonner's progeny. Jesus was of a swart-skinned breed, it is true, but she was not an Indian, nor was she an Eskimo, nor even an Inuit. Going backward into mouth tradition, there appears the figure of one Skulls, a Toyat Indian of the Yukon, who journeyed down in his youth to the great delta where dwell the Inuits, and where he foregathered with a woman remembered as Olili. Now the woman Olili had been bred from an Eskimo mother by an Inuit man, and from Skulls and Olili came Haley, who was one half Toyat Indian, one quarter Inuit, and one quarter Eskimo. And Haley was the grandmother of Jees Uk. Now Haley, in whom three stocks had been bastardized, who cherished no prejudice against further admixture, made it with a Russian fur trader called Spack, also known in his time as the Big Fat. Spack is here in class Russian for lack of a more adequate term, for Spack's father, a Slavonic convict from the lower provinces, had escaped from the quicksilver mines into northern Siberia, where he knew Zimba, who was a woman of the deer people, and who became the mother of Spack, who became the grandfather of Jees Uk. Now had not Spack been captured in his boyhood by the sea people, who fringed the rim of the Arctic Sea with their mystery, he would have not have become the grandfather of Jees Uk, and there would be no story at all. But he was captured by the sea people, 
from whom he escaped to Kamchatka, and thence on a Norwegian whale-ship to the Baltic. Not long after that he turned up in St. Petersburg, and the years were not many till he went drifting east over the same weary road his father had measured with blood and groans a half-century before. But Spack was a free man, in the employ of the great Russian fur company, and in that employ he fared farther and farther east, until he crossed the Bering Sea into Russian America, and at Pastolik, which is hard by the great delta of the Yukon, became the husband of Haley, who was the grandmother of Jesuk. Out of this union came the woman-child Tukasan. Spack, under the orders of the company, made a canoe voyage of a few hundred miles up the Yukon to the post of Nulato. With him he took Haley and the babe Tukasan. It was in 1850, and in 1850 it was that the river Indians fell upon Nulato and wiped it from the face of the earth. And that was the end of Spack and Haley. On that terrible night, Tukasan disappeared. To this day, the Toyats averred they had no hand in the trouble. But, be that as it may, the fact remains that the babe Tukasan grew up among them. Tukasan was married successively to two Toyat brothers, to both of whom she was barren. Because of this, other women shook their heads, and no third Toyat man could be found to dare matrimony with the childless widow. But at this time, many hundred miles above at Fort Yukon was a man Spike O'Brien. Fort Yukon was a Hudson Bay Company post, and Spike O'Brien one of the company's servants. He was a good servant, but he achieved an opinion that the service was bad, and in the course of time vindicated that opinion by deserting. It was a year's journey by the chain of posts back to York Factory on Hudson Bay. Further, being company posts, he knew he could not evade the company's clutches. Nothing retained but to go down the Yukon. It was true no white man had ever gone down the Yukon, and no white man knew whether the Yukon emptied into the Arctic Ocean or Bering Sea. But Spike O'Brien was a Celt, and the promise of danger was a lure he had ever followed. A few weeks later, somewhat battered, rather famished, and about dead with river fever, he drove the nose of his canoe into the earth bank by the village of the Toyats, and promptly fainted away. While getting his strength back, in the weeks that followed he looked upon Tukasan and found her good. Like the father of Spack, who lived to the ripe old age among the Siberian deer people, Spike O'Brien might have left his aged bone with the Toyats. But romance gripped his heartstrings and would not let him stay. As he had journeyed from York Factory to Fort Yukon, so, first among men, might he journey from Fort Yukon to the sea, and win the honor of being the first man to make the Northwest Passage by land. So he departed down the river, won the honor, and was unannalled and unsung. In after years he ran a sailor's boarding house in San Francisco, where he became esteemed a most remarkable liar by virtue of the gospel truths he told. But a child was born to Tukasan, who had been childless, and this child was Jesuk. Her lineage has been traced at length to show that she was neither Indian, nor Eskimo, nor Inuit, nor much of anything else, also to show what waifs of the generations we are, all of us, and the strange meanderings of the seed from which we spring. What with the vagrant blood in her, and the heritage compounded of many races, Jesuk developed a wonderful young beauty. Bizarre perhaps it was, 
and oriental enough to puzzle any passing ethnologist. A lithe and slender grace characterized her. Beyond the quickened lilt to the imagination, the contribution of the Celt was in no wise apparent. It might possibly have put the warm blood under her skin, which made her face less swart and her body fairer. But that in turn might have come from Spack, the big fat, who inherited the color of his Slavonic father. And finally, she had great blazing black eyes, the half-cast eye, round, full-orbed, and sensuous, which marks the collision of the dark races with the light. Also, the white blood in her, combined with her knowledge that it was in her, made her in a way ambitious. Otherwise, by upbringing and an outlook on life, she was wholly and utterly a Toyot Indian. One winter, when she was a young woman, Neil Bonner came into her life. But he came into her life as he had come into the country somewhat reluctantly. In fact, it was very much against his will coming into the country. Between a father who clipped coupons and cultivated roses, and a mother who loved the social round, Neil Bonner had gone rather wild. He was not vicious, but a man with meat in his belly and without work in the world has to expend his energy somehow, and Neil Bonner was such a man. And he expended his energy in such a fashion, and to such an extent that when the inevitable climax came, his father, Neil Bonner, Sr., crawled out of his roses in a panic and looked on his son with a wondering eye. Then he hired himself away to a crony of kindred pursuits, with whom he was wont to confer over coupons and roses, and between the two the destiny of young Neil Bonner was made manifest. He must go away on probation to live down his harmless follies in order that he might live up to their own excellent standard. This determined upon, and young Neil a little repentant and a great deal ashamed, the rest was easy. The cronies were heavy stockholders in the P.C. Company. The P.C. Company owned fleets of river steamers and ocean-going craft, and in addition to farming the sea, exploited a hundred thousand square miles or so of the land that, on the maps of the geographers, usually occupies the white spaces. So the P.C. Company sent young Neil Bonner north, where the white spaces are, to do its work and to learn to be good like his father. Five years of simplicity close to the soil and far from temptation will make a man of him, said old Neil Bonner, and forthwith crawled back among his roses. Young Neil set his jaw, pitched his chin at the proper angle, and went to work. As an underling he did his work well and gained the commendation of his superiors. Not that he delighted in the work, but that it was the one thing that prevented him from going mad. The first year he wished he was dead. The second year he cursed God. The third year he was divided between the two emotions, and in the confusion quarreled with the man in authority. He had the best of the quarrel, though the man in authority had the last word, a word that sent Neil Bonner into an exile that made his own billet appear as paradise. But he went without a whimper, for the North had succeeded in making him into a man. Here and there, on the white spaces on the map, Little circlets, like the letter O, are to be found, and appended to these circlets, on one side or the other, are names such as Fort Hamilton, Yanana Station, Twenty Mile, thus leading one to imagine that the white spaces are plentifully besprinkled with towns and villages. But it is a vain imagining. Twenty Mile, which is very like the rest of the posts, is a log building the size of a corner grocery with rooms to let upstairs. A 
long-legged cachet on stilts may be found in the backyard, also a couple of outhouses. The backyard is unfenced and extends to the skyline in an unascertainable bit beyond. There are no other houses in sight, though the Toyots sometimes pitch a winter camp a mile or two down the Yukon. And this is Twenty Mile, one tentacle of the many-tentacled PC Company. Here the agent, with an assistant, barters with the Indians for their furs, and does an erratic trade on gold-dust basis with the wandering miners. Here also, the agent and his assistant yearn all winter for the spring, and when spring comes, camp blasphemously on the roof while the Yukon washes out the establishment. And here also, in the fourth year of a sojourn in the land, came Neil Bonner to take charge. He had displaced no agent, for the man that previously ran the post had made away with himself. "'Because of the rigors of the place,' said the assistant, who still remained, though the Toyats by their friars had another version. The assistant was a shrunken-shouldered, hollow-chested man, with a cadaverous face and cavernous cheeks that his sparse black beard could not hide. He coughed much, as though consumption gripped his lungs, while his eyes had that mad, fevered light common to consumptives in the last stage. Pentley was his name, Amos Pentley, and Bonner did not like him, though he felt a pity for the forlorn and hopeless devil. They did not get along together, these two men who, of all men, should have been on good terms in the face of the cold and silence and darkness of the long winter. In the end, Bonner concluded that Amos was partly demented and left him alone, doing all the work himself except the cooking. Even then, Amos had nothing but bitter looks and an undisguised hatred for him. This was a great loss to Bonner, for the smiling face of one of his own kind, the cheery word, the sympathy of comradeship shared with misfortune, these things meant much, and the winter was yet young when he began to realize the added reasons, with such an assistant, that the previous agent has found to impel his own hand against his life. It was very lonely at Twenty Mile. The bleak fastness stretched away on every side to the horizon. The snow, which was really frost, flung its mantle over the land and buried everything in the silence of death. For days it was clear and cold, the thermometer steadily recording forty to fifty degrees below zero. Then a change came over the face of things. What little moisture had oozed into the atmosphere gathered into dull gray, formless clouds. It became quite warm, the thermometer rising to twenty below, and the moisture fell out of the sky in harsh frost granules that hissed like dry sugar or driving sand when kicked underfoot. After that it became clear and cold again, until enough moisture had gathered to blanket the earth from the cold of outer space. That was all. Nothing happened. No storms, no churning waters and thrusting forests, nothing but the machine-like precipitation of accumulated moisture. Possibly the most notable thing that occurred through the weary weeks was this gliding of the temperature up to the unprecedented height of fifteen below. To atone for this, outer space smote the earth with its cold till the mercury froze and the spirit thermometer remained more than seventy below for a fortnight, when it burst. There was no telling how much colder it was after that. Another occurrence, monotonous as irregularity, was the lengthening of the night till day became a mere blink of light between the darkness. Neil Bonner was a social animal. The very follies for which he was doing penance had been bred of his excessive sociability. And here, 
in the fourth year of his exile, he found himself in company, which were to travesty the word, with a morose and speechless creature in whose sombre eyes smoldered a hatred as bitter as it was unwarranted. And Bonner, to whom speech and fellowship were as the breath of life, went about as a ghost might go, tantalized by the gregarious revelries of some former life. In the days his lips were compressed, his face stern, but in the night he clenched his hands, rolled about in his blankets, and cried aloud like a little child. And he would remember a certain man in authority and curse him through the long hours. Also, he cursed God. But God understands. He cannot find it in his heart to blame the weak mortals who blaspheme in Alaska. And here, to the post of Twenty Mile, came Jees Uck, to trade for flour and bacon and beads and bright scarlet cloths for her fancy work. And further, and unwittingly, she came to the post of Twenty Mile to make a lonely man more lonely, make him reach out empty arms in his sleep. For Neil Bonner was only a man. When she first came into the store, he looked at her long, as a thirsty man might look at a flowing well. And she, with the heritage bequeathed to her by Spike O'Brien, imagined daringly and smiled up into his eyes, not as the Swartzkin people should smile at the royal races, but as a woman smiles at a man. The thing was inevitable, only he did not see it, and fought against her as fiercely and passionately as he was drawn towards her. And she? She was Jizuk, by upbringing wholly and utterly a Toyat Indian woman. End of The Story of Jizuk Part 1